We're dealing over here with a critical point in Jewish history. We're dealing with a time period of a community, Taman, under siege by the Muslims, fanatical, half-crazed Muslims who want the Jews to convert to Islam. One problem. The Jews themselves have doubts about the validity of their own religion. The Jews themselves are not sure that, in fact, how could we, how could we be, how could we be the chosen people when everything in our environment bespeaks of us not being chosen? We have no power, we have no influence. What kind of choosingness is this? They have all kinds of doubts themselves. The Rambam, <coughs> as the head of the generation, though he was in Egypt, this is in Teman. Are you staying? Oh, then. Thank you, I, I make copies of it. So when I, the Rambam has to deal with this issue. The Rambam has to write very artfully and very carefully. And one of the questions that we're going to raise is how could the Rambam use certain terminology with regard to Muhammad, for example, with Yeshu. He's going to be very critical in today's session. You're going to see how critical he is about Yeshu. I can see him being critical of Yeshu because he's not dealing with Christians. It's not part of his, his world of discourse whatsoever. However, when he calls Muhammad a Meshugah, I cannot explain yet to myself how the Rambam could use that terminology knowing that he's in an Islamic context. He's living in an in, in Islamic context. He's writing to people something. He's writing a public letter. This is a public letter. I was going to read this letter. I don't understand to this day, at this point, how we could refer to Muhammad in that very pejorative fashion. Maybe as we go along, we'll come up to some ideas as we go along to it. Sorry? Be true to thyself. Truth is only go so far as the security that you're living within that context. Maybe you're right. Maybe what I'm saying, I'm going to be true to myself and I'm going to say no matter what danger that imposes upon me, but you're dealing with danger. Now, it's true that Ramam lived, this is written in 1173, which means Ram came to Egypt in 1169, which means Saladin, the Saladin, was still the major power. Saladin had a very interesting relationship to the Jews. On the one hand, he was very good to the Jews. The Dhimmi did very well under Saladin. On the other hand, he was a fanatical Muslim as well, who supported the Sufi mystics very heavily. He did massacre various situations, various times, others of non-religious. He massacred them, butchered them, crucified them. He has a very mixed approach to the Dhimmi, Saladin. The Ram had a great relationship with him. We see nothing negative in all the Ram's writings, negative about the Sultan, Saladin. And of course, Saladin was, was busy with defending Yerushalayim from the attacks of the Crusades. And once the Crusades succeeded, he was busy again trying to recapture Yerushalayim from the Crusades. So, Saladin was busy. But still in all, to write this way, if the issue is treacherous truth, maybe you're right. I'm writing it, I don't care what. But the danger element over here is so serious that I think it's virtually a death warrant to say this. When they, these secret letters... These are all public letters. Public letters in Arabic. No, it's, it's in Arabic to the Jewish community. To the Jewish community as a secret. Not a secret. Because is all is written in code. If you this is not code. This is straightforward. It doesn't mention names. This doesn't mention names. This doesn't mention names. Yes, it that, does. That's mention. crazy one. Okay, now we'll, you'll see the context and we'll see exactly whether it's obvious or not obvious. You'll see, it's obvious. It's from Muhammad. So we'll see as we go along. So this is a very critical letter because it deals with doubts the Jews themselves had Prove to me, Rambam, that we are the chosen people. Despite what history tells me, for the last thousand years, prove to me that we're the chosen people. That's what they're really saying as a subtext over here. Why should I not convert to Islam, which seems to be a true or the true religion? They have the power, the influence, the wealth. Who said we're right? They're wrong. Maybe Hashem really chose Ishmael 
And we got the message wrong. Because what did Islam say about the Torah? That it's the Yufu. They changed. Really, Hashem chose Ishmael. And Ishaq was really a byproduct. You switched it around the names, and you got what you wanted to. And they want to try to prove that. They will try to prove that they are the chosen people. So Ram has to counter that, number one. Number two, the issue of a false Messiah who's really going in a different direction. He's saying, we're the chosen, and the Mashiach's here already. She's here already. We see the Mashiach here already. He's saying, I'm the Mashiach, and it's here already. How does Ramam counter that? It's a very fine line Ramam has to walk in this essay that writes the Jews of Teman. Good. Now, of course, he begins by saying, look, don't absolutize your present moment as your interpretive principle of who you are as a Jew. Don't say that because we are suffering right now over here that that means we're not chosen. Because there's a broad history prior to you and will come after you. <coughs> don't absolutize one moment. The same way that you tell Jews who went through the Holocaust, don't think that the entire Jewish historical experience revolves around that one little incident. One, I shouldn't say that. One incident of the Holocaust. But as serious as it actually is, there's a broader history over here of 2,000 years before that, 3,000 years before that. And there will be history after that. Now, can you sell that to a Holocaust survivor? That before the Holocaust, there was Jews in Judaism. That the orientating principle of our, of our religion is Yitzhak Mitzrayim. God redeems, God saves. There's a counterexample called the Holocaust. But at least we have two different experiences. And now you have to, at least you have two competing experiences to serve as your orientating experience. A interesting analogy would be, let's say you have an intense argument with your spouse. Intense. Uh, of course it happens, not in this rule anyway. Or with your rabbi, for example, right? Let's keep it on safe grounds, your rabbi, right? Now, you know the rabbi for 20 years. Let's say he loses his cool, happens occasionally. Lose your cool, let's say it happens, whatever it may be. Now you have to decide whether I'm leaving the house of my spouse, let's say, or I'm leaving the shul. Now, how should you judge it? Are you going to take the 20 years of your marriage, either in the shul, to the rabbi, or at home to your spouse, and say that the 20 years really can all be... Summarized down the drain by this one experience, negative experience, I agree. But you want to look at the broader picture out there. The broader picture was, we had 20 years of happiness and joy and, and goodness together. Wash absolutize that one experience as opposed to the entire breadth of the experience. Don't put it down the drain. That's correct. So the Ramam has to now broaden their experience. He does, be, be, to begin with, by saying, this, what you're going through, was predicted earlier on. Going back 2,000 years to the times, in the Ramah's case, 1,500 years to the times of the Nevi'im. They said that you're going to suffer. Let's explain that. We will explain that. But at least in the very beginning, this is predicted in Daniel. We spoke about Amos above, and we concluded last week on page Kufyud Gimel. You have Kufyud Dawud, correct? Yes? Yeah. So we ended up Kufyud Gimel with Daniel. And Daniel, oh, you have the wrong one. Oh, I'm sorry. And Daniel tells them that something very strange is going to happen. Something very strange is going to happen. He quotes Daniel, I'll just repeat the last page you don't really have in front of you. This is last week's? Okay, good. So he's going to say to us over here that There'll be many... Are you also the last? Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't... I apologize. Don't absolutize this experience. I usually, I usually do things right. Not always though. Many people will have clarity of thought. And there will be evil people who will do evil and won't understand. But the wise people will understand. 
And Daniel continued to explain to us, Even those wise people, and the people that understand, who suffered, they suffered and they stood their ground. With their belief in Hashem, there still will be other afflictions. So all of this is to be viewed as nothing new. Your suffering has to be seen in the broader perspective of that which was predicted. Admittedly, it doesn't make you feel any better. But, let's say I'm a person who's a rabbi in a shul. Right? Let's say I fail. I don't connect with people. I speak ter- terribly. My counseling is poor. Just don't work out. Right? So now, you have to tell me that. You have to fire me. Right? Now, how are you going to do that? You say you're fired, throw me out the window. That's one way of doing it. Or what you might do is say, look, nice way. Okay, what's the nice way of doing it? You know, there are many people that were here before you. Many of them didn't succeed. It takes a, let's say, it takes a very uh, strange combination of qualities to succeed as a rabbi. You have 80% of them, but 20% just don't work at this particular place. So over here, you are broadening the discussion by saying that Daniel has predicted this is going to be difficulties, but be wise, understand that your position over here does not mean you're a complete failure as a person. It's not mean that you're not going to make it any other place. You are going to someplace else. So you're you are arousing him, say, go look for another job in the shul down the block. That will be a good chemistry between you and the shul. And even if it doesn't work out over there, there'll be another place. This is what a father will tell a son if he gets fired when he's 18 years old from his first job. What, are you going to pack up your suitcase and say, that's it, end of the story? No, you're going to say, you have qualities, you have talents, and yes, this will happen in life. You will lose this job, you may even lose your next job, and your third job, it happens, it's okay. It doesn't well, affect who you are as a person. What was told to Israel in Mishraim for 210 years? I don't know. <laughs> that's a good question. It's a good question, I don't know. Because they kept the faith. They kept, right, some of them. Well, I mean, it's an interesting issue. How many of the Jews kept the faith? The, I'm referring to the Midrash which says Hamoshim lo b'sim Mitzrayim there's only one-fifth left I don't know if that's true or not true but only one-fifth left as opposed to four-fifths who had stayed in Mitzrayim and, and died out so maybe yes what did you tell how do you get people who undergo tragedy and sorrow Mitzrayim Holocaust to keep the faith how do you tell that person who was dispirited because he just fired from his job that you could still make it so try again keep on going and there's going to be more suffering. It's predicted. It was going to happen. Okay. But stand strong and withstand the pressures of right now. Until, Daniel says, there's going to be a doubt in these wise people's minds and they will make a mistake and they will deviate. And then some very small number will understand the broad picture. They will understand that all this is part of a program or a plan. Once you've given meaning to the suffering, it's easier to deal with. So let's say you tell that child of yours that you didn't get fired, but did you learn anything from the job? Yeah, I learned I shouldn't spit in my boss's face. Okay, you learned something. You learned not to contradict your boss. Though you may be right, you're right about this item is selling or not selling, but the boss has a vested interest in you pushing this item and don't, you know, 
tell him, don't tell him, no, it won't sell, it won't sell, it won't sell. Because he threw you outside of the item out. So you're dealing with a boss. Be very sensitive. You learn something. Now, the person who's hard-nosed, no, I'm going to tell him the truth about this particular product no matter what. But you didn't learn anything then. Bosses are very difficult people to get along with. And they own the company. The shul is the committee. They own whatever I do, I do because they say tell me to do so. Even to giving a first minyan class. Right? I don't just fly with trucks. I'm an employee. What am I? Leon and I, we take care of the place. we do. So now, <coughs> if that's the case, we just try to do our jobs and that's it. They serve as the boss. So he's saying over here that you may even have doubts about yourself and you may deviate over here, but very few are going to see the broad picture that this is only one learning experience. You had a job, you had fight, it was a learning experience. Don't give up. So that's comforting. Why is it comforting? It's comforting because I see that there's reason. And let's say you go further. Let's say the father says, you know something? I told your boss to fire you. Why'd you do that, Dad? Because I wanted you to learn what it means to get fired from a job. I want you to learn how to go to another something else. Instead of working in the, uh, I don't know, the warehouse all your life, I want you to go look for different things. So the father showing confidence in the son. The father over here is giving a perspective on what happened. Perspective on what happened. And the son may not understand it then, but at a certain point he'll understand, my father did what was right for me. Right? It's an interesting issue. Let's say, just, just better off, exactly. It's interesting. Let's, parenthetically, let's say we bring up our kids and they say, um, get a job. And he works, in a, let's say, in a record store, right? Makes his uh, five, six dollars an hour. Good. Now, let's say the kid's talented and go to college. And he has a choice to make now. Should I stay over here in the record store making five dollars an hour for the next 40 years? And, or should I, you know, try something else? Right? So what should the father do at that point? He can either let the kid do what he wants. He's making two hundred dollars a week now. Well, wonderful. It's money in his pocket. Go out, this and that. But long term, it's a short change sale. Correct? Obviously. So the father would be, should be proactive. Tell the record store manager, fire my son. Kid doesn't know what to do. He says, well, why don't you go to college? He goes to college and gets, then gets a triple paying the job because he went to college, right? So obviously, you want to be proactive in that way. Sorry? He approved. He approved. Okay, good. So the wise people will understand the broader picture to clarify, to purify, to see clearly until the end. The small number of people are going to understand. It's, well, unless you think you're one of the wise. In other words, you may think of yourself. Now, the Ram's writing a letter. Are you one of the wise or one of the evil? He's asking them now. By quoting Daniel, this is predicted 2,000 years ago. In his point of view, let's say it was not, it was 1,000 and let's say 500 years ago, right? He's saying, this is predicted. There's a plan over here. Your suffering and affliction is part of a progression, part of a process of Havle Mashiach, let's call it. It's not irrational. There is hope for the future. There's light at the end of the tunnel. You're going to be redeemed. In Egypt, they tell you, you're going to be redeemed. This is a learning experience for you right over here. You're learning about how to be compassionate and how to be kind and all that. It's a learning experience. Hashem told Abraham 100 years ago, that's what's going to happen to you. You're going to be enslaved. So it's part of his plan. 400 years ago, whatever number of years are going to be explained, and then they're going to be judged, and you will then leave Berchush Gadol. Right? So now, if I were Moshe, or if I was a leader in the interim, what would I going to tell them? Sorry? Before Moshe. Yeah, right. Before, if I were before Moshe, and now in the middle of 200 years of slavery, let's say, whatever the number may be, 
Or I tell them, predict it. It's process. It's supposed to happen this way. And there's light at the end of the tunnel. And if you break the chain... It's gone. It's over. That's the issue. It's over. So now your choice. Now the evil people are going to break the chain. They say there's no hope. Forget about it. We're not doing this any longer. It's over. But a small wise percentage may say, I want to be one of the wise people. The, the evil break the chain. The wise say, maybe there's something to be said for this whole entire process. If not for me, then for my son or grandson. And then it receives value. Drama says over here that the wise people, Yikashlu, the Tzrof Bahim, till the time of the cats. The cats is the end when it all works out well. Kiod Lamoed. There's still time period to learn the process of what's going on over here. So even the wise may not see it. He's saying, you may not see it. You're in the midst of it. You may not see the, how this whole thing works out, but at the end, if you wait around long enough, then you will see the rhyme and reason of this entire process. Atahenu. Now my brothers. A direct appeal. He's writing compassionately. He gave them a perspective. He gave them a breath. He gave them the prophecy of Daniel and Amos. Hayavim Atem, my brothers, you're obligated to listen, to turn your ears, to listen what I shall place before you, and to teach it to your children and to your wives. Kedesh Kayemahem, in order for it to to validate that which was doubtful to you about your belief. The you had beliefs, are you really the chosen people? Is God really on our side or not? So I'm going to tell you something now, what's going to validate your trust in God. Strengthen your souls. The truth, I'm going to tell you the truth which you cannot deviate from. So now he comes across with an absolute confidence. If the leader says, well, I'm not really sure what's really going to happen to you. You may be consumed by the afflictions and by the suffering. I'm really sorry, but I just really can't help you. That's not going to give them much comfort. But if he tells them, I will tell you the truth. This is really what's going on. I'm going to give you the interpretive key to all your suffering. It's going to become rational and uncomprehensible and understandable. All of that, pay attention, then you're giving them some degree, some measure of comfort. And God should save you from the doubts you have about your own religion. Now, I eat, oh, I eat today, we will, we will destroy terrorism, but we will cost. Big time. But it will cost. Right. That's but a very important way, correct? This, yeah. It's the same uh, message. Mm-hmm. It's, it's going to cost, exactly. So at least you're prepared. Yeah. You were paid for it. Right, connect. Exactly, correct. Now, oh, pay attention. No. Shazot hi Torah Tashem Amiti. This is the true, true, true Torah that was given to us by the master of all prophets, of all the early and later prophets. In this Torah, God has separated us from all of the nations of the world. As the Pasuk says, only in your forefathers God has cleaved to, has shown to love them and choose their that arm, their children after them, from all the nations. So what did he do in this, this issue over here? What did he give them? What did he do for them so far? He gave them their history, their roots. He quoted a pasuk. Hmm? He gives them hope. Hope, exactly. That's the key issue. He gave them hope. He gave them hope, saying, our chosen nation concept is rooted in your own text. We didn't finish the whole story yet, but it's rooted in your own text. The ends of the fish are in the 
It's not because we were deserved of this. Rather, God's kindness and compassion and goodness. Because of that, He was kind to us and good to us. Now, what's interesting about that, because of that, because of the Hasra of Hashem, He did this. Now, why is it important to say it wasn't because you deserved it, but rather God's kindness? Them, yeah. exactly, because when you may conclude over here, let's say they concluded, I am now suffering because I was, I transgressed, right? So what's the end result then? Then God punished me according to my ways, and my ways fell short, and therefore what's going to happen to me? I'm gone. I'm lost. I have no hope. But if I root the chosenness in God's compassion and kindness, which is endless and infinite, even if I'm not such a good person. Then what do I have? I still have hope. What am I hoping in? God's goodness. God's kindness. So he's not saying it's up to you to do to be better. Because that would be very frustrating. Because what they could say, well, let's say I was really very good. And I'm still suffering. So, And I don't understand the system any longer. I'm very good. Put on my tefillin. Kept Shabbat. Ate kosher. Mikveh. Did everything right. I'm still suffering. I still am afflicted. So if, it's, if you root this in their behavior, A, you may lose from the point of view of they're really, they think they're really good and then being suffering. Or the opposite. I can't make it any longer because I, what could I do at this point? I'm evil, transgressed, they put they keep kosher home, no mikveh, so now I'm being punished for it. Once you say you're punished for your sins, right? You tell that to somebody, then what would be that person's reaction at that point? So, okay, so give up. I'm punished for I didn't make it. Okay. So I give up. So he says, no, it's not nothing to do with what you did or didn't do. He's not setting the bar higher. Be more religious and you'll be saved. Because Ramam knows what? What if you're not saved? What if you're not saved? So be more religious. What if I'm not saved? Imagine, exactly, how far could you go? Imagine a guy who loses his job and says, God's punishing me. People come to me, I lost my job, I don't have. I lost my two stores, God's punishing me. So I... What if I told him, well, you keep Shabbat uh, relatively, okay, relatively, most of the time, do it more. Come to shul. Do more, more, more. Now, what has to happen then? He's got to make more money. What if he doesn't? Rabbi, they make more money. This happens. This is a truth. This is a truth. Issues. This really happens with certain rabbis. So come to shul now. But he didn't make more money yet. Now, I know that the... Exactly. So I raised the bar harder. I didn't have right covenant. So how high could the bar, which is the how high could the bar go before the person says, "Look, who are you kidding? I'm gonna give it up because it doesn't work." Once you place religion on that quid pro quo basis, that if you put on tefillin and keep kashrut, keep Shabbat, and give tzedakah, God will bless you. It may work out that way, but it may not work out that way. You could tell me equal number of people that do all the right things and are not making it, and all the guys who are doing all the wrong things and are making it. That's not God's plan. Whatever God's plan is, is God's plan. Whatever it may be. Ram does not want to place the bar so high and saying, it's up to you to do better. You do better, you'll be blessed. He knows it's not going to happen. Or it may not happen. It may, but it may not happen. So, here he says, it's up to you. This is not your issue. What are you doing? This is not because you were deserving that God choose you. God chose you because of His kindness and goodness, which is eternal and infinite. So, even though you're experiencing this period of affliction and suffering, it's part of a process, it's part of a program, part of a picture, part of a whole framework, and it's all rooted in God's goodness and kindness. Now, we have to evaluate as we go along, is this going to help this people? 
What would you do? You know, again, it's our question also, that if, um, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. Let's say, God forbid, a child is sick. Right? Your kid is sick. God forbid. Serious illness. So you go to the rabbi and says, well, do more mitzvot. You do more, and 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 you do more. Child doesn't get better. So that's one scenario. Right? But as opposed to that, <clears throat> you tell the person, look, we don't understand really why your child is sick. We don't know what, what Hashem's plan is. There have been other children who have been sick. Some recovered. Some by Manan did not recover. But God is kind and compassionate. And there's a framework out there. There's a picture out there that really makes sense at the end. We don't know the end. But it does make sense. So now what's going to make that parent feel better? Be more religious? And if you don't work out, it doesn't work out? Or the opposite, saying, look, I don't understand the whole picture. What should the rabbi tell that person? This is my question all the time. Tell the person, you got to be more religious, and then you should get to better, it's better, 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 right? Or tell the person, look, I don't know why your child got sick. I, I don't know. I don't know God's plan. What I do know is God's compassionate, God's kind, God is good. Hashem is all those things. And there's a whole program over here, there's a whole process over here, which does make sense. And I pray that your child will get better. And you should pray your child gets better. Just That's most that I could do. <clears throat> now, sorry? It certainly is tough either way. No, no, you're absolutely right about that. It's tough either way. But where would I rather, personally, some rabbis are willing to bet. It's a bet. That's also true. It's also true. You know, you're right. But it's, um, you're right. Who are you talking to? And But if I'd rather bet, do I want to end up saying, well, if the kid does not make it, you know, then, God forbid, and then end up saying, but I did all that, rabbi. I don't want to be that. You didn't do it right. You didn't do it right. Or you, would you have Because then he's guilty. Exactly. And he's guilty. He's, well, I don't want to put that on somebody. I think that's the height of cruelty with regard to these situations. And sadly, these are very real situations. So the Rambam is not laying the blame. The Rambam is not laying the blame on their shoulders. God's compassion, God's good. It's up to you, this issue. This is part of a program. It's part of a process. Part of a learning experience. And you say, I'm learning experience. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. You have to give hope at the end. We said before it's correct. You have to give hope at the end. There is a kiss. There is an end. I'm giving you hope. The exact details, we may not be sure. But be sure of God's goodness and kindness. That's what he's saying right now. <clears throat> that, that this whole thing happened out of God's goodness, right? Why? That's interesting. Because our forefathers, earlier on, Engaged in good deeds, in knowing God and God's service. So now what's he doing with the Ramah? Our forefathers had chosen to know God, had chosen to do service of God, and therefore he chose the forefathers and children forever. So now, and who's he? They're correct, correct. Those who he's talking to did not do it, but your forefathers did it. So analogously, imagine the following scenario where somebody comes to you, right? And says to you, I'm going to give you a job though you just lost your job, I'm going to give you a job, right? Not because you're good or bad or whatever the case may be. I don't know who you are, I'm going to give you a job. Because your grandfather helped me a hundred years ago. And I am committed to helping him and his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren. Right? Right. Because I want to be makito, I want to be uh, aware of what a good he did to me. So now, the, your grandfather was good to me, the forefathers were good to Hashem, so now it comes on and on, on. So it's not to you. It's not in your plate. Succeed or fail, whatever you're going to do. Rather, because Hashem helped them ongoingly. 
So now you can say, it's not me who's now going to be judged. I can't deal with that kind of pressure and that kind of judgment. But I have the security conference know that you, my benevolent sponsor, are going to guarantee me a good end. You're going to make it at the end. Why are you going to make it at the end? Because your forefathers were good or because your grandfather was good to me. So now, Ram says, because your forefathers had engaged in acts of goodness, and knowing God and serving God. Interesting over here, this comes to mind, the very famous um, Woody phrase, how odd, and this was said by anti-Semites in the early part of the 20th century. Good morning, David. How can I help you? Morning, what do you need? I'm looking for, the, looking for something from last night. What, for example? White column. <laughs> you misplaced the column? <laughs> this does happen occasionally. Those columns walk away all the time. Right. <laughs> oh, we hit her in here. We can put her in the closet. Kala. <laughs> Very good. So what happens over here, uh, sorry, the 20th century, part, there were anti-Semites who said, you're the chosen people. Same issue. You're the chosen people. Why would God choose you? You're so much better than everybody else. So the response of Marie Samuels in the early 1930s was, how odd of God to choose the Jews it's not so odd the Jews chose God. I said it often enough. Meaning that because the forefathers, same point, because the forefathers chose God, therefore Hashem says, I will now guarantee my goodness and kindness to you, the forefathers, and to the children, even if they're not deserving. Right, exactly. Even if they're not deserving. That's an amazing statement. So now, you are this person who was depressed and you were unhappy, you lost your job, you all this thing that happened to you, right? Okay, good. But now you have this person who's going to strengthen saying, the pressure's off now. Now I'm guaranteed my family's going to be fed for the next five years, let's say. Good. Now I could have the strength of, of, of character to go forward and fill my capabilities because the pressure which was afflicting me was so horrifying, I couldn't even function. I couldn't work. I couldn't move. I couldn't get out of bed in the morning, right? But because my benevolent sponsor came along and said, because of your, your forward said, I'm going to take care of you and your grandchildren all the way through. So now you can produce Sending over here. Because of the four of us did it, God's going to take care of us. Good. What is he saying over here? What are the Muslims saying to the Jews? You are few in number. You have no power. What's Ram saying? That Hashem said originally, don't expect chosenness to mean necessarily great fortune, great numbers, great strength, or great power. No. You are small in number. What is this chosenness rooted in? God's love for you. And to safeguard the oath they took to your forefathers. So you now secure your omnivhar, despite the fact that you have no power, no standing, no stature, no dignity. Your dignity is rooted in God's love for you. So the Muslim says, Look around you. This again was true in the eastern part of the world regarding the Muslims, it was true in the western part of the world regarding the Christians. They told the Jews, Look around you. Who do you think is chosen? You have nothing, Jews. You're a despised minority of a minority. What are you? You have no status. You have no dignity. You think you're chosen? You think God's going to choose you? So you walked around saying, He's right. What do I have? Easy for us as Jews in the beginning part of the 21st century to make proud statements. Look what we have. We're financially successful, politically powerful. We have the state of Israel. We have all this. We can be proud as a Jew. But if you were a Jew in 1947 or 1946 or 1945 in Europe, you were despised and hated by all of Europeans. You were massacred by the Germans. No country would let you in, not Canada. 
not Cuba, not the coast of Florida. We brought a boat of people. You're so disgusting to us that what do we do to St. Louis? Send it back. So your thoughts are, I must be that horrible. I must be that bad. Nobody wants me. You're depraved, demoralized. <clears throat> no shot. So in that period of time, you need words of strengthening, hezuk. Ram now is telling them, don't measure chosenness by external criteria of success. The guy that makes the billion dollars out there, does that mean God loves him necessarily? That's not our program. Not necessarily. If God does, if God doesn't, that's not the issue. And the guy who's dirt poor, does that mean God does not love him? No, that's not our criteria of success. Sorry? Mazalot. Correct, that's your luck. Nothing to do with God's choosing you, not choosing you. And Ram says, from the very beginning he's telling you. It's the very beginning. It's going to your source. Going back <coughs> 2000 years from the Rambam's time. Not because you were so much in number did God choose you, but because rather God loved etchem and from keeping the oath that he swore to you. So the oath is there. So feel secure that God is still going to provide for you and there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Good. There's a catch. There's an end to all this. Now, that's only the first step of talking about chosenness. Now, Kuf Tetzvav, right with me? Halfway down, four lines down. Now, get this next point, right? Now, now because He chose us, the, the Creator chose us, and gave us commandments and statutes, and it was explained our superiority. Right? They are suffering from a condition of servitude. Right? It's interesting. One of the interesting studies that people had done, psychologists had done, in the uh, aspect of the Holocaust is that often, if you're told how depraved you are enough times, you will begin to believe it. Holocaust people, country people, you will begin, and you will identify with what your captors are saying because your environment supports it. At the end, there's an interesting study by Ellie Cohen called The Human Behavior in the Concentration Camps. It's a brilliant, brilliant book that was showing what people do. At the end, if you're told enough times by enough authority figures supported by the environment, I'm imprisoned, so obviously, I am what they said I am. I must be a criminal. I must be depraved. I must have no status or, or dignity as a human being because they told it to me. Because your sense of self-dignity is being battered by your environment, by the authority, by everybody. You begin to believe it. You begin to believe it. That was Galvo's mission. And that was the mission. And he did it. Succeeded. He very succeeded. For many of them. Because you have to have so much internal strength of character to say that it's not me they're talking about. I am not what they're saying. And it's very hard for most people to have that strength of mind, that stubbornness of spirit, to be able to deny their claims. Because the external environment supports their claims. I am in a concentration camp. I am looking ridiculous. I'm not shaving. I can't go to the, to the bathroom. I have this uniform which is too big or too small on me. I do look disgusting. I do feel disgusting. I must deserve this. People conclude that. So now the Rambam, notice his progression. First, God has chosen you. Not because you're wealthy or powerful, because he's, because He loves you and your, for, your forefathers. Good. And God has given us all these commandments. And it's become clear. It's become clear to others. To others, right? It's become clear. Our superiority. You are superior. Despite your external circumstances, vis-à-vis -vis the outside world, you are superior. For others, with God's laws, Shneemad, as the person says, who is a great nation that has these wonderful righteous laws as the Torah we have it? So you better. Now what happens next? 
they are jealous of you. They are very jealous of what we have. In other words, <clears throat> here's a slight twist of hand. He's strengthening and empowering. It's a good word. He's empowering those depraved people who think they're depraved, who think they're missing out all that, by saying, really, you have it all. God has given you these great mitzvot, these commandments, given you everything. So they're jealous. So now he's turned the situation to the flip side, to the other way, on its head, saying, really, not that they're saying, we're better than you, they really are what? Jealous of you, because you have it all, and they really have nothing. Now, you might look perplexed at the Rambo, one second, I have nothing in the bank, I have no dignity, no status, no stature, and I have it all? I don't get it. That's in the Rambo, that's what they're going to tell him. So I don't, and they're jealous of you. Now, it's interesting. Imagine a child, you know, who comes home, who's a seven or eight year old, who's really upset because the other kid is a great athlete and very good in school and is, and, and what do you, what does the parent tell the child? How do you empower that child? What are you going to tell him? You really stink? No, you can't tell that to the child. We're going to tell the child. Get their good qualities. I'm sorry? Tell them about their good qualities. Right. You have something good. But that kid is yelling at me saying that I stink. So, you did strike out in the ninth inning. Right, so the external environment does support the other kid's claim. And they got hit at the Grand Slam home run. So it does support it. So you want to tell the child his good qualities. And now, at the end, you may tweak the other kid's nose by saying, and he's really jealous because you really are whatever your good qualities are. You're a good, kind person. You care about people. Let's say the kid's not the greatest athlete. Let's say the kid's not the smartest kid in the class. And the kid feels badly. He gets sick, the kid gets nine. Oh, it's, you know, you can deal with this as, as parents all the time. And you have to know what to say to a child who is feeling that lowliness because his external environment is really dumping on him. It's beating him up. You're feeling low because school's not supporting you. Your sports are not supporting you. So your job as parent is to empower that kid. How do you empower that kid? Point to his good qualities. You really have good things. You're kind. You're caring. Something else. You're really very. You're a good person. You are a good person. So now the kid says, okay, so now the kid is empowered. Now you go, maybe want to go one step further. That kid who's torturing your kid, saying, and he's jealous of what you do that's good, because you're respectful, you care about your parents. So you may say, he's jealous of you about what you could do, which again puts him down. And you may say to me, good parenting skills should not put him down. That's true. But let's say a kid needs that extra measure of empowerment by saying that he's dumping on you because he's really jealous of you. So I have, infe- have in effect, diffused what he says. He says, ha ha, I had the Grand Slam home run. And I'm t- taunting you. But you've diffused it because what is, what's going on in that kid who struck out's mind? What's, what's he thinking over here? It's irrelevant what he says because he's really only jealous of me. Because he's jealous of me, that's why he's saying that. So in effect, whatever done to all of his claims, debunked him. I'm ignoring them. He's not the source of authority. What he says does not count. So imagine, again, if you use the other analogy of the concentration camp personality, what does he have to say to diffuse what the Nazi says about him? He really knows that I'm superior to him. It's interesting because we have certain accounts of... Uh, exactly. Say, right. Certain accounts where the Jews felt superiority. Some of them, of course, felt inferior. But many of the, the great rabbis that were in concentration camps felt superior to them. What was the proof? And they said this to the captives. I would rather be here, me, than you there. Now, it's, that seems to me to be obviously true. 
right? We not we would not want to be Nazis, even at some expense of survival, right? I don't know if it's obvious to everybody, but the rabbis who said this that we've read really meant it. I would rather be me, God's chosen people, and the Nazis. You're chosen. Look, I'm going to kill you right now. Yeah, but I'm still chosen. You are the dreck of the earth. Why is that? Because look what you're doing. You are killing people. Look what you're doing. And really, who is chosen over here? So the Nazi feels, I am. I'm, I have all the power. But, correct. But that's not the criteria of God's chosenness. Rather, what we'll say is that, I have my dignity. And whatever you can do to me, you can do to me. I understand you have the power, you do whatever you can do. But I have my dignity. And only because you wish you were like me. Therefore, then, then you would, that's why you're doing what you're doing to me. Because you wish you were like me. So now, is that an effective strategy? So that's what I'm doing over here. He's saying to them over here, because of the jealousy, the jealousy of the the, the Muslims over here, right? kulam. They all were just of our religion. They were very jealous of us. Now, their kings, because of our religion, had pushed ahead. To stir the pot against uh, us, hatred and anger, right? Their kings had stirred the pot, it means to stir the pot, against us, great hatred, right? And their will, desire, was to battle God, to battle God. So these kings who are attacking us are really attacking God. They will fail. God is God. They cannot succeed in what they try to do. Right? They are fighting against God. And there's not been a time from the time that the travel is given to us till our time now that every pagan king, Gover, there's been times when the pagan king, Gover, he overwhelmed us. Gover. Who forced us, who is lorded over us, who, there's never been a time when one of these pagan kings who lorded over us, that whose, whose intent from the very beginning was to destroy the Torah and to overturn our religion as what Islam is doing now. So you are now part of a long chain, sad, of being chosen and thereby Jealous, inspiring jealousy by the others who's now going to, to attack you who's really attacking God again what's the strategy of saying they're attacking God over here good God's the ultimate power so now imagine if you were to walk away saying God's on our side at the end of this day when you do this over here those are nice pictures I'm a picture person too so at the end of the day what's going to happen over here that Hashem is with them they are doodling battle against so they're going to be punched at the end they're going to pay price that's, that's the ultimate end. He's making it easier to believe in all this. He's giving them a perspective, a framework to believe you're chosen despite the external environment, despite your weakness and the position you have in society, and that these people are jealous of you, and that they are stirring the pot against you, but they're really battling God Himself. At the end, they have to fail. From the very beginning of time, when the trial was given to us, there has always been pagan kings. Now, interesting that his analogy over here is what? Pagan kings, Islam. Pagan kings did it, Islam's doing it. Same exact thing. Who forced us, whose intent was to destroy the Torah, which is what Islam is doing. So the Torah is nonsensical. They're trying to destroy the Torah. 
and to overturn our religion by force. Right? But it's a horn with their physical prowess. Or beheaded by the sword. This is a new, not a new story. You're not a new child on the block, a new kid on the block. Rather, what's happening over here? What has happened always in the past. Now, what's the subtext over here? They survived, and guess what? So too will you survive if you maintain your Imunah by Hashem. They maintain Imunah, they survived. You maintain your Imunah, you will survive as well. As, for example, Amalek, Sisra, who was head of the Canaanites, Sanharib, Melech Ashur, Nebuchadnezzar, Melech Babel, right? All these powerful people. Titus, Hadrian, Hadrian the king during the Bar Kokhla revolt, 132 to 135. Yeah, there's been many before these Islamic fanatics who have been attempting to overturn Torah, to do battle against God, right? This is a physical attack against the Jewish people. Zehu Hanoah, Hayahad, these are one of the types of attacks against the Jewish people. That tried to defeat us, to emerge victorious, have to Elohim. To, to emerge victorious over God's chosen. Right? Now, I'll ask you now this question. What's the other angle? They are being physically assaulted by Islam right now. That's been in the past. But there's another type of assault. A second type of attack. Which is not physical. Rather, it's intellectual. Right? Intellectual. How's that going to be? The second type of attack are those who mehudadim, who are sharper, had sharper from the other malchuyot kingdoms. Not a frontal attack like Amalek or like Islam physically, but they are rather hachamim right? Wise people from other languages or other nations. For example, the Edomites, which is the Romans. Now remember that Edom. The Talmud times and on has always been synonymous with Christianity, right? The Holy Roman religion became Christianity after the 4th century when Constantine converted. So the rabbis always associated Christianity with Edom, which was for two reasons. First reason is, because now I can talk about Christianity without mentioning Christianity. I mentioned Edom, my internal subgroup knows I'm referring to Christianity without attacking Christianity face-to-face or frontally, number one. Number two, I can attribute all of the evils of Christianity to Edom. Esav who Edom. So as evil as Esav was, I paint Christianity in the same terms. So all of the be aware is that they're bad and Esav is bad. Therefore, you're supposed to say Christianity is bad. Right? They're the same both. They are the same. Esav and Edom. Correct? Good. But one always raises the question, how did that association happen? How did Esav or Edom, same, become Christianity? How did it happen? What was the mechanism to make this work for them? And again, there have been many attempts to try to explain this type of mechanism. How did it really work? Right? So now, one suggestion, one suggestion has been that, as I think I mentioned to you once before, that of course you know that Romulus, in the 6th century before the coming year, 7th century before the coming year, founded Rome. Romulus was rejected of his parents, placed on a hill, and was nourished or fed by wolves who were red. Right? A wolf is red. Has red skin, red hair. Esav had red hair, right? Edom. Edom means red. Because he was a ruddy complexion. He had that redness to his hair. He was a redhead, right? So, therefore, the rabbis made a very simple transition. Esav who Edom, right? 
And therefore, Christianity, which became the Holy Roman religion, was nurtured by the red wolf. Now, that's some people's association. Others will say that, interestingly enough, after Herod the king, who ruled till about six before the Common Era, he had a son, Antipater. Antipater, I might get this a bit mistaken, but if I remember correctly, was from Edom. And he gave in to the, to the Romans. He was from Edom. There was a period of forced mass conversion of the Edomites, the, the biological of the Edomites, to Jew, become Jews. Forced conversion. And Antipater was the one who initiated that. We made them become Jews. Right? He was a kind of, his mother was Edomite, his father was Hordus, so he had forced this conversion. So now we're looking at Edom, right? He was biologically an Edomite, and he gave in to the Romans, who became the Christians, so therefore we see the Christians as Edomites. Some explain along that period of time, in that fashion. Nobody's quite sure exactly how Esavu Edom became Christianity. It could be one of those two ways. Now, this attack by the Edomites, right? And the Persians, and the Greeks. They too want to destroy our religion and to violate our Torah with their claims. This is a verbal attack, an intellectual attack, not a physical attack. And they ask, raise many questions that they would author. And their attempt in all of this, right? They are fair to write to the Torah and to wipe out to wipe out in all their writings to write out all of the implications of the Torah itself as as they as the first people try to physically wipe us out in their wars against us they try to overturn and wipe us out with their verbal arguments no one is going to be successful against us Give these people strength. The Almighty Himself. Right? Bisirta told us, it's going to happen to you. By Yeshayahu the Prophet. Every physically strong person. Every brigand and powerful personality. That's Han. Who's going to try to destroy Torah and to violate our religion with his physical weapons. His weapons will be broken apart. God Hashem Boreh Kileh Mahatov will destroy his weapons and he will not succeed. And Zero Adirch Mashal Klamar, this is a metaphor as it means to say, Sha'asato Lotishlam Olam. What he wants to do will never happen. And so too, all of those claims, Shitkavin Abatil, who whose attempt is to nullify what's in our hands, that he will ultimately be viewed as guilty from the adjudication. In his claims, and we will nullify his claims. And it will not succeed. As Yeshayahu said, call Kili, every utensil, Yutsar, that's fashioned against you, and call Lashon, every verbal language that attacks you with the claims, that comes again to you in adjudication. Because what are the Christians saying to you? Krishna is saying to you, let's go to judge. Who's the chosen people? You think you are? God chose us. It's a verbal polemical attack. Constant polemical attacks of the last 2,000 years of the Christian world against us. 
Tarshi'i. You and the Bedin will emerge victorious and they will be viewed as evil. Now notice how above the Rambam used the word Lashon. Correct? The rabbis from the other Leshonot, which ties literally together over here, the whole Lashon. See the connection? The paragraph above on page Kofted Zayin, five lines, the, ra- the, the wise men of those Leshonot, five lines from the bottom, four lines from the bottom, those Leshonot reflects what Yeshayahu says, Kolashon, every verbal, verbalization of it shall ultimately in the courts of law objectively decided Tashi'i will be viewed as evil. This is the inheritance of those who serve Hashem and and their righteousness is from me, so says God. Ultimately, God decides this issue, that you are chosen people, you are right, and the physical attacks and the verbal intellectual attacks shall fall apart. Their evil shall be known by the objective court of law. Good. So there's two attacks that the Jews are now subject to, the verbal and the physical, and both will fall short of what God, because God wants it to fall short. Okay? We'll stop over here for now. Kufi Zayin. We continue next week. Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. Sorry? Take my mask. You want the first sheets or to bring them again or just put them away? Okay. Yes, that's true. Yeah. This is the new ones. This is the old ones. Oh wow. What about me? Lollipop, I want a lollipop. I want a lollipop. I want lollipop. Just give us one. Thank you. Thank you. Give us one. Thank you. Lollipop. Yes, I'm going to give you now another lollipop. I'm going to find one in my office and give you another one. How's that? If your daddy would have it. Yeah, I can find it. Maybe for your sister. I'll give another lollipop. I think I have lollipops in my office. What should I read?